Sarah London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. This episode was recorded on November 25th, 2015, at the Park Hyatt Hotel in Zurich, Switzerland, where I had the pleasure of being met by Dr. Barbara Davies. Dr. Davies has over 30 years of work experience as a Jungian analyst, having received her training under the direct supervision of Jung's closest associate, Dr. Marie-Louise von Franz. It was a dream that Dr. Davies had about Arabic alchemy that brought her and von Franz together. For over 12 years, they worked side by side, with Dr. Davies eventually becoming von Franz's writing hand due to her illness with Parkinson's disease and they worked together until von Franz's death in 1998. Dr. Davies grew up in Geneva and earned her Ph.D. in psychology from the University of Zurich. She is a member of the Federation of Swiss Psychologists, as well as the Swiss Association for Child and Adolescent Psychology. She is also trained and licensed in hypnotherapy, with certifications from both the National Guild of Hypnotherapists in the United States and the Freiraum Institute for Humanistic Psychology in Switzerland. Along with a private practice in Zurich, Dr. Davies conducts seminars in Jungian psychology throughout Switzerland, France, Sweden, Spain, and Australia. Her seminars include an introduction to fairy tale interpretation, getting to know the I Ching, the Chinese Book of Changes, the Symbol of the Mirror in Depth Psychology, an Introduction to the Interpretation of Dreams, and an Introduction to Alchemy, a central area in understanding the thought of C.G. Jung. Dr. Davies wanted to begin our conversation with typology because I had asked her, why do people clash? If you ask me, you know, why do people clash yes. uh, so quickly? Why do we clash with some people and why yes. do we get along with others right away? Well, that has to do with typology, right? And that's jumping into the center of Jungian psychology. Yes. And usually when I start giving uh, seminars or when I start with people in analysis, I very often start with typology because that's something which is easy or relatively, let's say, sure. relatively easy. And so, uh, as you know, there are four types, right? There is the thinking type, the opposite is the feeling type, there's the intuitive, and then there's the sensation. These are the four types, and then you have an introverted and an extroverted type, right? And that, that's usually what you meet. Now, if you are, let's say, if you are a feeling type, you'll be a diff- very. If you meet an, if you meet a thinking type, you'll be very different, right? Yes. Although both types are rational types, or you can call them rational types. And so, if um, the thinking type meets, for instance, meets an intuitive, right? Intuitive have that special, are very special in the sense that they very often don't see what's right in front of them, but they see around the corner, yes. right? Or they see ahead, very often ahead. It means it's very hazy, very often, right? They are not very straightforward. And when they, when they talk or when they give a lecture, they have a tendency to jump. Mm. And between jumps, they're always thoughts right and if you're not in if you're intuitive you know exactly where you are you understand these jumps but the thinking type gets very annoyed because of because there is a gap between ah, yes. between the thoughts because it, it for an intuitive it goes very quickly and usually he can't as quick as he thinks 
intuitively. Yes. Right? And therefore, there's a gap. And so the, the thinking that we get annoyed because he wants that clear, uh, he wants clarity. And the intuitive gets annoyed because he does because the, because the thinking type doesn't understand, right. right? So they clash, right? And I mean, this is very, this is very normal. It's very normal. Very normal. Very yes. normal. And in analysis, you have to be careful, right? You have to be careful that you don't do that, because otherwise, you you analyzant will not follow. So what happens when an analyst and an analysis are different types? <laughs> oh, that's very often the case. Sure. First of all, it makes it more interesting. Yeah. More interesting because then there is um, a tension. Yes. Like with this tension, it makes it seems more interesting. If you have the same type, you understand each other very quickly, very uh-huh. well. Um, but then you have the tendency to, to let it go and think, oh, yeah, I mean, it's all very easy. Mm-hmm. Um, an intuitive, when he gets a sensation type as an analyzant, it's, it's usually really difficult. Yes. Because the sensation type uh, wants a result right away. The sensation type is naturally interested in what's uh, rational, what's clear, what's concrete, uh, the solution, how do we get there, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what can we do. And intuitive, it's absolutely uninterested in such things, right? <laughs> yeah. A- absolutely. I mean, the names, numbers, you know, things which are concrete and rational for an intuitive are details, uh, unimportant details. Unimportant, right. They know it's there, you know, everybody has an age, everybody has a name, uh, mountains have names, right? Right. Uh, but in fact, that's a detail, right? Yeah. It's basically not so, not at all important. Mm-hmm. And um, so the, the, there can be some moments of being annoyed, right, for a sensation type. Because with a sensation type, it's important to know the name, what the person exactly does, and where are we going, mm-hmm. right? And the intuitive is usually not very interested in where are we going. He knows. <laughs> he knows or she knows. But we don't really need to talk about it because it's clear. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm a sensation type, and I'm t- very much relating to what you're saying. Oh, okay, so we're not <laughs> yes. talking into emptiness not so. at all, right? So, uh, okay. yeah, I do clash with intuitives all the time. Okay, that's it. But now I know. You know. Okay. Yeah, and in- intuitives will clash with you, right? Oh yes. Yeah. Right. So, what do we do when we find ourselves clashing with not our analyst, but with people, people in general. I think you, <laughs> you need patience <laughs> <laughs> and to know yourself. I mean, that's I mean, you. That's the beginning, of course. I mean, right. Without knowing yourself, and that's what analysis is about: is right to become who you really are. That's mm-hmm. that's basically what human um, was suggesting. Mm-hmm. Right? We don't know who we are, but also to not lock yourself in that box. I'm a sensation type. That's it. That's not true. No. I'm all of those of things. Of course, you are all of them because you have first and second and third functions. Right. right? It's just the fourth function is extremely, uh, is extremely unconscious, and it will stay that way. Yes. But it doesn't mean even that that an intuitive has no sensation. Mm-hmm. It's just not so handy. It's not right? handy. Yeah. It's not. It's not there whenever you want it. Right. But you, but an intuitive, uh, at the best, right? He will, he will have a, a sensation. Okay, 
just okay. But it's difficult. You will prefer to delegate the stuff, right? To someone else. To someone else, right? And it's exactly what is the intuitive shouldn't do. It's to delegate it because in the fourth function, let's say, so in sensation, he's extremely authentic. Uh, ah, yeah. He cannot pretend something. And so when you say fourth function, is another name for that the inferior function? Exactly. Okay. Well, you know your stuff very well. Yes, that's the inferior function. Mm-hmm. Inferior function is, I find, extremely important. Extremely really important. important to know. Okay. Yeah. That's where you need. That's where you need the patience with yourself. With yourself, yeah. yeah. And intuitive has, that's usually a very difficult time with matter altogether, right? Because matter is supposed to behave as you want. Right? <laughs> yes. And it just, it just mainly most of the time just doesn't. It doesn't. It just doesn't, right? right. And the intuitive gets extremely annoyed. So patience with yourself, you, you patience suggest. Patience with yourself, patience with the other. With the That's other. That's the basic thing I would say in analysis that you need. You need patience. That doesn't mean that you have to be patient, you know, endlessly. Okay. Uh, there are also times where you have to say that's enough. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's enough. You've gone through that and it's a complex, okay, it's your mother, okay, it's your father, it's all that, right? You, right. Your grandparents, if you want. But after a while, you have to say, okay, now let's see where does the dream want to go? Mm. Not, you know, why are you having this? Why are you so neurotic? Right? Okay. Well, as a neurosis, everybody has some kind of neurosis. Right? Yes. But there comes a point where you just have to live with it and make the best out of it and, and go where you have to go. I like that you suggest that uh, at some point we just have to live with the neurosis. Absolutely. Yes, and not always say there's something wrong with me, I need to cure this. We don't get cured don't of it cure. ever, we, do oh, we? Never, never. I mean, that's not the idea. It's not the idea. That you cure it. I mean, it cures itself. Very good. It cures itself. And when you have a major complex, that complex is going to stay, right? And you have to make the best out of it. And uh, for Jungian, for Jung anyway, it was the, the regal way. It was the king or the queen's way, the regal way, right? Uh, the the complex, because without a complex, I would not, I wouldn't want to develop myself. The oh, complex yes. is that what what pushes me into my own development, because it nags so much at me. Yes, right, and it. Uh, disturbs me so much right and it's painful the complex is so painful when you are in the complex it makes you it makes you miserable right you get out of yourself you don't know who you are anymore you do things you you know you you suddenly don't know any more things right when you're in your complex an, an abandonment complex is a terrible thing right that doesn't really go away Mm-hmm. Are you going to live with it every time your friend is not coming on time home? Uh, you you have fits because he's right. not or she's not right. on time. Then you have fits, and that's the complex, right? Because you feel abandoned. So what can we do, for example, with that? Well, I could say the first thing is to know you have such a complex, right? right? You have such a complex. And and then you have probably to learn a little bit to be also there to be patient with yourself. And maybe there should be some mothering, right? Mm. Because you feel an abandoned child and it's very it's most likely that you have 
also having the abandonment complex being abandoned somewhere somehow. So you need to look at that and you need to learn to mother yourself yes. at that moment. Right? But uh, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. And also with a complex, um, when we get to know it pretty yeah. well, we don't have to go into it all the way every time. No. No. We can stop. And no, say, it's okay. very interesting to see, you know, what we go- what are we going to do with this complex? Yeah. And it's important in a relationship that the other person knows what complex is bothering you, what complex is making you suffer. It's important for them to know... For for your partner to know what is... My complex. uh, My complex. Because then you understand much better some reactions which may be totally irrational for the other person. Yes. Or exaggerated. Or they think it's directed at them when it's really about me. It's really true. Yeah, that's true. And so that makes things also easier because because you react intensely, right, in the complex. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Extremely, extremely intensely. And um, and it really, that's that's because you you jumped, because the complex jumped right at you. Yes. (laughs) Right, you are sitting in the claws of that complex. Right. Because that's how it is. It's really, it's really a, quite a monster. Complexes. The complex is quite yes. a monster. And in I, I believe I had read that at the core of every complex an uh, archetype. is an archetype. Yeah. yeah. That's behind the, uh, yeah, every complex has an archetype. And a wound. And, yeah, and a wound, I would say, for life. For life, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's also the same thing, right? Same thing is where you are so um, wounded, right? That you're very much human. Yes. And accepting each other's humanness, yes. humanity, yeah. uh, instead of expecting each other right. to be polite right. all the time and yeah. gracious all the time and, quote, good all the time. Yeah, well... It's dangerous. To say the more you try to be good, the more you're the opposite, right? Yeah. The more you, you're worse. Don't ever try to be good. Don't ever try to be good. I like that. It just yeah. doesn't, it just won't work. Yes. So it sort of constellates the opposite. It really does. Yeah. I mean, that's the point we are at, right, today, I would say, in the world. Yeah. We, we have a problem, a problem of opposites and because they are always there these opposites we have an enormous problem of shadow right i always bristle when i hear somebody say have a good day oh gosh i think oh no same question is how are you today right i mean we do ask that because it's a way to enter the discussion Right. right because we need this form but um but in fact it's a difficult question yes to answer, yes. <laughs> yeah, so this have a good day or have a great night, yeah, what, yeah. Do you, what do you say to that? I mean, have a night, yeah, this is my night, good, bad, indifferent, and everything in between. Okay, well, maybe it would be better to say interesting. <laughs> have an interesting <laughs> evening. Yeah. I hope, I wish you yeah. have an interesting yes. evening. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, uh, because to have an interesting life is, uh, I don't know if I want to use the word better, than to have a good life. Oh, gosh, what 
practice a good life. Yes. What is a good life? That's a huge well for question. me. Yeah, I mean it's very personal, right? I think sure. a good life is for some people to have a lot of money, mm, right? And of to have a career, and that's maybe call what a good life yes. or a happy life. For others, uh, for instance, like Daryl, you know, it's uh, to be as creative as possible. Yes. And for you, maybe to and from France. The good life is to really do what the unconscious wants you to do, to be able to finish what the unconscious asked you in your life oh, to create. Beautifully said. Right, and that's 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 a good life. And when you are able, before you die, to write the last sentence of a book or of of a work, right, then you can say, "I've had a good life." So you mentioned von Franz, and I'd like to ask you about her. Would you speak a little bit about her, your history with her? You you tra- you did your training with her. I did, yeah. Well, I worked for her. That's probably the most important thing I worked for her. For so, how did years. you meet her? Well, at that time, at that time, that's an interesting thing, actually. Um, I was uh, having analysis or doing analysis with uh, one of her friends, who was an analyst in Zurich. And um, she, she realized, my an- analyst realized I had a, a dream about um, Arabic alchemy. And at that time, von Franz was thinking of writing about Arabic alchemy. And that was the beginning of her Parkinson. Yes. Beginning of her Parkinson. And she was, uh, and her secretary had left. And she was looking for someone uh, with uh, at least three languages and to help her because she was starting, you know, to notice her Parkinson. So what year was it that I this? I remember that's The 80s? Uh, yes. Yeah, oh, yes. Oh, yes. The 80s. Beginning of 80s. Yeah. And so um, that's how I came to France, because I had the dream. I had a dream about Arabic alchemy, of which I knew nothing at all. Sure. And um, that, so that's synchronistic, right? Yes. That's how things happen, right? When they're very meaningful, it's very often synchronistic. Yes. And so um, my analyst at that time told her, oh, she, you know, Barbara had that dream. And then I met from France. But I had met from I met from France and I started working with her. You started analyzing with her? No, no, no. I knew her before. I knew I knew her because I knew from France before. I'd met her a couple of times before. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, at that time, when I had the dream, I had the dream. Right from France, as I said, was looking for someone to yes. work for her, and that's how I started with 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 from France for the. For the next twelve years, until three days before her death. I see. And um, the interesting thing that many, many, many years before, before I even started um, analysis, I this friend of mine was at the Jung Institute, and I thought, hmm, um, I should go to the Jung Institute too. That sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. And so uh, she arranged for a meeting, a meeting with von Franz. And, uh, okay, I went to see her, and we talked about a dream or so. And so she said to me, ah, oh, well, your friend is at the Institute, and you think you, you want to go there too? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, 
And so then she said, okay, we'll go and do that. Mm-hmm. that. But that meant at that time, I couldn't have gone into the Jung Institute because I didn't have, I didn't have my grades. Yeah. Right? Okay. Because at that time, you needed to be at university, at least to be able to go to the Jung Institute. Right. And I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. I was doing something completely different. So she, so she basically, she basically said, that's it. And after saying 40 minutes, that was it. Oh, that was it. That means, uh, well, you go and do it. At end of the story. Okay. End of the story. And that, I was extremely shocked. Yeah. It was also November, like a bit today. Right. It was cold. It was rainy. It was gray. And there I was, and I thought, oh, from France, all doors are going to open, right. it's going to be great. Yeah. And that was, that was the opposite, all doors closed, uh, right? And it forced me to go to start studying again. And that was, a, that was pretty tough. And I remember meeting Barbara Hannah. And Barbara Hannah, we were talking about my dreams, and she said to me, ah, oh, yeah, it's going to feel like a hundred exams. So that was, oh my God, you know, what, ha- <laughs> oh, no. what is this? You know? Yeah. What is this? But I was always very interested. I was extremely hungry. I've always mm-hmm. been extremely hungry for, for knowledge. Yes. And that is actually that was, I think, what got me into, into studying. Because I had a child at that time. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so that was interesting to see that many, many years later, I met from France again, ah. according, uh, based on a dream and a, and a, and a synchronistic yes. happening. Right. And then you work for her. And then I worked for her, yes. As and we worked on that, on that, we started working on that, uh, on that book, on Arabic alchemy, which came, Did you? Which, which came out. It's actually in English. It's about Ibn Umayl, who was a great, uh, Ibn Umayl, his great um, alchemist, uh, Sheed, Sheed alchemist in the 9th century. Yes. So you are a Jungian analyst? I'm a Jungian analyst since, well, I don't know. Since when? Since about 30 years or so. 30 years. And I had, I was already beginning, I was already practicing when I met, when I re-met, or I met again from France. I was, I was already having uh, my, my own practice then. You already had your own practice? But I did, uh, I went to university, right? And right. I'm basically, I'm also a, a, psychologist, a clin- clinical psychologist. Okay. And PhD. And yeah, that's how. And you did that here in Zurich? It, I did all that in Zurich, yes. So you got your uh, graduate degree, your. In Zurich and PhD in Zurich, and then you be, you got your diploma in analytical psychology. Yeah, but that uh, analytical psychology, I mean, uh, due to due to the analysis I was doing with from France, around from France, through from France. Yes, but I never went to the Jung Institute, right? Because that wasn't part of the deal. I see. And you were with her up until her death. Yeah, a couple of days before. A couple of days. That must have been really tough. That was very tough. And you were were writing for her because she couldn't write. She couldn't write. So I did her, I was basically her private secretary. Yes. And and we were doing uh, everything, basically, everything which was... She was working on a book up until the end? Yeah, and, and many different books, really. What was the last book that she wrote? The, the last book, probably there was a cat. I'm not quite sure. Yeah. The cat, that's one of my favorite. Yes. Yeah. The cat. 
uh, and she was finishing or rewriting, you know, different books. And when she passed away, had she finished everything? Probably, yeah, absolutely. Yes, she or did. She, I mean, there is a beautiful dream of hers, which you will find in, in one of her books. I would have to I have to tell you where it is. Okay. In which she talks about the last dream she had. And mm. um, that's a number 17. It was um, a stone which has 17 angles. And 17 is an extremely important number in, in, in alchemy or in, especially in Arabic. What does it mean? It means different things, really. And, I mean, it means that you have done your work. You've done everything you Everything that you had to do here is done. It's a it's a very religious number too, the seventeen. And she writes about that in one. She of the writes books. about that. Yes, she writes about that. And I would have to, I can't remember which book it is, but I'll okay, you can you. tell me, and then uh, I'll include mm-hmm. a link to it on the page that has your podcast. Yeah. Just one more thing about her. Um, I know she was quite ill for many years. Yes. And um, I had read in a book that she didn't want to take medication for her Parkinson's disease. She took some, Mm -hmm. but she could have taken more. She didn't. She decided not to. And what was her reason for that? I think it's extremely personal reason. And we all have different um, interpretations of that question yes. regarding that question. Yeah. yeah. Um, I really per- don't want to go sure. into that because it's extremely personal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I only ask because I, I've i taken all different kinds of medications in my life and I, I just stopped. I said, I don't want anything to be affecting my mind. I don't want to feel groggy. I don't want to feel high. Yeah. I want to be me. I want to be clear. Yeah. And I stopped drinking almost 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't drink any alcohol and I don't take any medication. But that brings me to wanting to finish up a little bit on typology that we were okay. talking about earlier that we didn't talk much about the feeling function <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough one for me to understand okay well there is something so special about the feeling function okay um it's my opinion um and i think you will also find it in france but i'm not i don't it's it's so clear it's not so clear in the type in the typology she talks about regarding the inferior function but i think the feeling function there is no personality which can be as cold as the feeling type okay the feeling type the other side of the feeling type is yeah. an extreme coldness it can cut you off just like that an intuitive account okay and intuitive and my, it's my experience, right? Maybe mm-hmm. someone else will say something different. Sure. But my experience is um, with feeling types that when when they really want to cut it, or cut a person off, they will. Just like that. And it's probably right. It's probably right. Yeah? It's just extremely, extremely um, painful yeah. and hurtful when you experience it. So would you describe a feeling type a little bit? 
Well, a feeling that is extremely, extremely well related, mm-hmm. right? That is the advantage of that type. It's it's related. It's got it's got it has immediately feelings for for you, right? It understands you on a feeling basis, mm-hmm. right? Not on a thinking basis. Okay. And you don't have to define yourself, <laughs> but for a thinking type, you have to define everything. If we talk about something, we need to define the, that thing first. Otherwise, we don't know what we're talking about. Okay. But with the feeling time, you don't have to define it, right? It's what the feeling really is. It's I don't know. We don't really know. Mm-hmm. But it's. It, I think it's a way. It's the way the feeling that relates to per, to people or to things too. To things as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's related to nature, for instance. Okay. Right? Yeah. There is that beautiful, beautiful example. Uh, from France about uh, the sunflowers and uh, she went walking with an intuitive uh, and they, the whole day they had, they saw beautiful sunflowers and in the evening you, know, you sit with that person and you talk and you say, where do you, have you seen these beautiful sunflowers? And the intuitive will tell you, sunflower? <laughs> <laughs> because it just, it just wasn't there. Right. Well, that would never happen to a feeling type, never. Okay. Right, <laughs> because it is related to earth, related to earth, it's yeah. related to things, right? It's related to the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, this is not a very specific, right? It's a, it's, ex, it's extreme. Mm-hmm. Sure, say. It's, it's just a, a good. It's an example to, to express uh, the, the intuitive or the feeling type. So the feeling type's inferior function is naturally thinking. Yeah. And yes, that one has to be careful. I mean, I think that when a feeling type, when the feeling type has a good thinking function, it's the only time he's. I think that his his thinking has real depth. Okay. And I find very often that thinking type are very are extremely clear cut, but they don't have any feeling in there. Right. Of course, feeling thinking is so different, right? Right. But it's. Great thing about the feeling type when the feeling type has a lot of thinking to do or has to develop his inferior function as far as it goes, um, it is it thinking has a lot of depths. I see, and I find that the, the thinking type because it's so rational, in my opinion, very quickly gets boring. But that is just me, right? Okay. <laughs> it's sure. just me. Mm-hmm. The thinking type knows a lot of things, but it can get boring. Because just the knowledge in itself, right. if it's not, if you're not related to it in a way, is boring. It's boring, yes. But the feeling type, when the feeling type, I mean, I know a couple of, of women who have, have had that. They had done a lot of thinking, had to, and that's difficult for them, naturally, it's difficult. Sure. But then their thinking has real depth. I see. And that's, it's an, Completely different than the thinking of a thinking time. So I had asked earlier, I'm not sure if I uh, expanded on this, what I've noticed people do is lock themselves into identifying with their type and not developing any of the other functions. Was it either you have to develop it because nature forces you into another function or... I mean, because your parents, for instance, want you to be 
somebody like they want you to be a thinking type. Maybe father, father and mother are both at university, and they think their little kid is, is going to have to be a professor of some kind. Right. And then they force the uh, force the child to be a thinking type. Of course, the child will be very neurotic, hmm? uh, but he and he's probably or she's maybe not at all a thinking type, but mm-hmm. maybe a feeling type, right? Okay. Or intuitive, or someone else, but then it has it will have developed two functions, so that's an advantage, right? But later on, I'm, I'm sure later on that that uh, that person will find out that he's not that type; he's in fact quite another type. Right? Yes, and right. that would be a tremendous release. Right? He would be very freed if you if he had to be a, a thinking type when he's actually a feeling type. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be a fantastic release. Mm-hmm. So, as far as developing our other functions and not so much identifying with what uh, Daryl Sharp and I talked a little bit about typology tests mm-hmm. because they're very popular these days mm-hmm. and how limiting they are and how inaccurate they tend to be. And that he said that they didn't make room for the fact that typology is dynamic. It changes, and especially later in life, we start to maybe absolute an intuitive will start to maybe become a little bit more, or I'm sorry, uh, an yeah. introvert will start to become a little bit more extroverted. Ah, uh, you're talking about these extremes, introverted and the ex- yeah. extroverted and introverted types. Yes, would you yeah. say a little bit? But about even that? during the life, during lifetime, right? You suddenly, you sometimes you have, you have phases where you where you need to be extroverted. I, I wonder whether there are types which are mainly only mm-hmm. uh, introverted or totally extroverted. I doubt it. I think that we are always a little bit both. We're always a little bit both. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, because uh, I see a lot of identification with the, the type that they believe that they are. Yeah. Or that, that a test told yeah. them that they are. Yeah. And that's it. There's no leeway and that's not necessarily no, true. I don't I don't see it that way. Mm-hmm. I don't see it that way. And that it can change with time. And that in that and it has to, you have to you have to, right? Life life forces you into being maybe more introverted or more extroverted, right? Right. I remember always hearing the psyche seeks wholeness and how can we be whole if we're only identifying Absolutely. with one Absolutely, with yeah. one type? Yeah, but there, naturally, a life is. I think life is so that you will always meet uh, your own opposites. Yes, right? and so you're forced to try and uh, come to terms with with your opposites. And when we reject them out of hand at first, they'll show up in some other form. I mean, just look at the, the whole idea of the shadow, right? The sh- that we have to be, be more aware of the shadow and try to try to, in a way, integrate some of the shadow that we have instead of projecting it on the outside. Could that you... is where you. That's already. That's already the beginning. The beginning of of being whole, right? Because you try to integrate. Uh, the shadow that's that is integrating your your opposites integrating your opposite yeah the shadow which meets you and faces you every day every day every day yeah so would you the worst part of yourself yeah (laughs) the worst part of ourselves 
we see every day. Every day. And, and if we uh, and if we see it, that means we should also be a little bit more say, patient with the uh, shadow aspects of our personality um, or some other people of, of whom we think that they are bad or, or very unconscious. They can't help it very often, right? They are that. So they are that. Sometimes I think, thank, thank God, they have to take that, up that part then I don't have to do it myself. Yes. That's a concept I don't hear many people talking about. Oh, that's tough. Nashville. That that's is tough. tough. That's very tough and very dark and yeah, and very shadowy. And, and it's dangerous. I mean, I don't know. That's a dangerous thing if we think of the world today. Right. Right? And we say, aha. That they're carrying our shadow. Yeah. Instead of us integrating it ourselves, or at least having you know having a look at it, because integrating the shadow is very often not at all possible, right? Because impossible. It's very often not possible. Not possible. Not yeah. It's, too, it's so tough. Right. Yeah. Because that means we have to go down. We have to go down oh, yeah. into the unconscious. We have to go down into the our own cellar. Oh, deep, deep down. My own darkness. Yeah. But the consequence, if we don't do that work, is that we're going to project it onto the outside and world. Then we have the world we have. And then we have the world we have. So what would you say, how can union psychology help the state of the world today? Oh, what a big question. That's a huge question. What a big question. Of course, um, I don't know. I really don't know. But I think the only work we have to do is the individual work. Mm -hmm. It's the way we can help. Because Jung said that really the world hangs on one thread. Yes. And that thread is the psyche. The psyche. Yeah. And so we're responsible for that. We're responsible. Because that, that thread doesn't get cut. Yeah. I, I personally believe that it's my job to work on myself. I get in trouble when I expect or I want others to take it upon themselves to work on themselves because most people don't. Um, but for me, all I can do is worry about myself and in that way. Isn't that enough? <laughs> oh, right, right. I'm saying that um, that's my decision. Yeah. That's my choice. That's yes. the way I see the world. Yes. That it's yes. my responsibility yeah. to keep my own side of the street clean. Try it. To try to. <laughs> Thank you. Every time I talk to an analyst, they remind me, because I tend to think and talk in black and white terms, to try to keep my side of the street clean. God knows I. it's not always very clean. No. But no, uh, to have that awareness, to walk yes. around with that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That helps. Them. I think that that work that we do in analysis and helps the world not to go banana if, if it's not already quite banana. When we are working on our level of consciousness and taking responsibility for ourselves out in the world, ourselves, our relationships, right? And our relationships. Look, this is, it's already there. Daily work is a, a relationship. I mean, the, like, that is, can be so painful. Yes. To work on your, on the relationship. 
so painful. I see so many of so many relationships that are so difficult. And um, to stay in a relationship when it's difficult is, is quite an achievement. Sure. Or to leave the relationship is also an achievement in some cases. Okay. Very, it's interesting. Very, I found very often that uh, when people want to want to 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 separate, the unconscious wants them to stay. And the opposite is true too. That they want to stay. The unconscious thinks uh, they ought to separate. It's very, it's very interesting to find out that. So both people have to be involved in that process if you're looking at the unconscious. I think this is extremely important that both both are in analysis. I I, I, I can only say what I experience. Um, so are that we, they both need to be in some kind of analysis. You're saying when when a couple is working on yeah. their relationship, yeah. that it can't be just one. It happens. I mean, I know, right? It happens. Yeah. And, and sometimes you can say it has happened that a, a one person uh, decided to leave and do analysis some, with some analysts for three or four years. Mm-hmm. And they just, and then uh, they went back to their relationship and it worked. It was fine. Right? Okay. And only one worked. But the, I find it extremely unusual. Extremely. I think the, the other way is much, uh, is, Happens much more often that um, if one only one does analysis, it will um, it will lead to a separation. Because when you become more conscious, it's very difficult to uh, to bear the uh, the unconsciousness of the other partner. To bear the unconsciousness yeah. of the other partner. It's very yes. it, it gets very very difficult. So what happens when a person in a relationship points out? to their partner something that their partner is not conscious of and of course they deny it oh that's rough it it leaves nowhere it leads nowhere it leads nowhere it leads nowhere at all because if you if you if you're unconscious you're unconscious yeah you just don't know and certainly don't want your partner to tell you (laughs) (laughs) right to tell you you know where your weak points are so it's up to us to bear where our partner is being unconscious. Yeah, that's that what it amounts. It amounts to that, really. Right. Yeah, I think so. And that takes a lot of ego strength. Uh, yes, a lot of ego strength. I think that's where wisdom okay. comes too into the picture. Okay. And yeah. it, it may lead to a bit of more wisdom. When you start bearing the other person's... So in the cases where a relationship should end, it's when the two people cannot accept each other's shadows. I think it probably is at the basis. At the basis. But I think that probably it's more like they're preventing each other mm-hmm. from developing. Ah, okay. I would say that's... That's probably um, number one. Mm-hmm. They're just preventing each other from developing or going where they should be going. But that's one possibility amongst a couple, and that's why it's so it's so complex, right? Relationship, I think, relationship is the most complex thing you can have. And our relationships are not better than the world and our world. Mm-hmm. They're no better than no. The- 
it's the, world, a, the world really mirrors our the level yeah. of relationship we have. That's, that's the way I see it, right? It's a really, the world is really a mirror. I see so much people writing and posting things about pray for peace, world peace. Sure. That's a great... It's wonderful. Thought. <laughs> Absolutely. But... It's not enough. It's, I mean, you can stay unconscious. You can pray and stay totally unconscious. And then the world... And, the Dalai Lama said something extremely important. Um, I don't read many books of the Dalai Lama, but one I read just lately. It's a very it's a small book. In that he says, actually, um, he said, it, it doesn't say it word by word, okay. right? But he says something like, actually, it'd be better, uh, it'd be better to have no religion, right? What we need is ethics, 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 yeah. right? Global ethics. That's what he says, and uh, I would underline that. You would underline that. So what is a way that we can have more of that in our lives? Well, I think um, the work we do now ourselves, is, mm-hmm. is that's ethical work. That's ethics. It's to be conscious of yourself, to be conscious of your shadow, to, uh, to learn to have more patience with yourself and with the others, uh, to bear that's ethics. That's not religious. So when people are preaching about, not preaching, but when people are really hammering home uh, world peace, world peace, world peace, yes. I, t- I, I just, I bristle because I think, well, what are you doing in your own life for world peace? Is your life peaceful? The problem is that naturally um, it's so easy to project, right? Right. You should be, the world should be at peace, the world should be this, the world should be that, mm-hmm. and it's not this and it's not that. That's projecting. That's okay. a projection, how the world should be. How do we know how the world should be? And when people say, well, there's so much suffering in the world, there's true. so much violence in the world. It's true. It's true. And you're saying it's quite possibly a reflection of us, of our own brutality, of our own brutality. And I mean, you know, if you look at your dreams, you will certainly have figures in your dreams, figures which are extremely brutal. Right? Your animals, for instance, can be extremely brutal. Oh yeah. Mm. Well, there we are. Your male part in yourself can be extremely brutal, but that's where you are. So you can see it mirrored on the outside. I don't mean to, you know, that you have always to take everything um, for yourself, right? right? That you're responsible for everything. You're not responsible for everything. But you're responsible but you're for yourself. Respons- but you're responsible to see, you know, or to, to, to understand or to think about your own, your, your own parts in all this. Our own part in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that it's not just them right. and they. Yeah, and it. You said that you're also a clinical psychologist. Mm -hmm. And so how does clinical psychology differ from Jungian analysis? Oh, it's very, very different. Mm -hmm. And why did you decide to be both? Um, I would say that I'm not very much a clinical psychologist. Okay. 
It's just the way I, I had to go to university, right. and then it was clear I was going to do clinical psychology. It prepares you for many... Clinical psychology, I think, very good basis. Okay. It's just not enough, because uh, it doesn't do anything to my own personality. It tells you about neurosis and psychosis and all these, dis- these disturbing things that you that human being has, but it does not help you to see who you are. That's very interesting because um, when I first got into analysis, I um, it was right after I graduated, well, it was about five years after I graduated from college, and I studied psychology in college, and I remember my I would keep all of my textbooks, and I had one called Abnormal Psychology, <laughs> and you know, I was trying to find myself in that book. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And I remember telling my analyst in the beginning about that book. And she said, you know what you need to do with that book? You need to throw it up against the wall. Oh. So I did. Oh, like, um, <laughs> like in a fairy tale. Yeah, I mean, it takes a frog and <laughs> throws a frog against the wall and there comes the prince. <laughs> yes, that's what happened. I did it in my basement too. So I was angry with my analyst. I wanted her to diagnose me. I wanted her to tell me, this is your problem. This mm-hmm. is what you are. Mm-hmm. And she didn't, you know, she wasn't going to do that. That wasn't what okay. she was about. Okay. And maybe she hadn't figured it out. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and that's not what union analysis is about. And I didn't understand that in the beginning. Um, and that was very helpful for me because it wasn't about that it wasn't about pathologizing right my right. behavior mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. human mm-hmm. my humanness exactly exactly and, and that's that, what clinical psychology isn't clinical psychology wants to pathologize mm-hmm. everything and there it, it has to it, it has, has to. to you have to learn i know i think we have um, when we go through that study right we have all these problems we are uh, all these pathologies at one time or another all of us right <laughs> Schizophrenic. Okay. I mean, you have, we, we are all of it yeah. at some time during our studies. Sure. And you suddenly think, oh, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the pharmaceutical industry wants to create a pill, a medication for all of this. There's even a medication you can take because your eyelashes aren't thick enough. <laughs> That's real. And it has this whole long list of side effects. Uh, yeah. So so now we're not good enough because our eyelashes aren't there. Right, we're never good enough. No. Yeah. So that's clinical that ladies and gentlemen is the difference between clinical psychology and you <laughs> analysis. <your> eyelashes. <laughs> <laughs> the end. Um <laughs> So it wasn't enough, and you explored Jung? No, I knew that, because um, I mean, I knew when I was 12, I remember mm. reading, uh, I think, a, a book or something, and I knew I want to be a psychiatrist. And mm. I was 12, I knew that, I knew that. And, um, but naturally, I didn't really know what a psychiatrist does. Sure. I, I just knew that's what I'm going to be. And I probably forgot in the meantime, right, because of all these things that you do when you're mm-hmm. young and you start developing in your life. When I got, I remember, when I got into university, which was later, and I didn't do university when I was young, I did it a bit later. Mm-hmm. I remember, no, um, 
I want to study um, physics and maths. That's mm. what I was interested in. And so I did that for five semesters, and I found it extremely interesting, but I wasn't good enough, really. I wasn't good enough to do something with it in life, in real life mm. afterwards. It would have been just theoretical. And so um, when I, re I realized that, that I was going nowhere with this wonderful fantasy uh, um, of doing uh, theoretical physics, then I realized, I mean, you, now you stop losing your time and you, and you go to psychology. Right. And then I did. And then it went very rapidly, mm -hmm. one thing after another. Mm -hmm. But um, as you see, um, things don't go in a straight line. But they tell you that it does. Not at all. I don't think anything goes in a straight line. Right. And if you look at modern physics, where well, you have loops, <laughs> the latest, I think, the latest um, quantum in quantum physics, if I'm right, the latest thing are the loops. Mm -hmm. Quantum loops? Yeah. So, we so there we, you go. We loop. Mm -hmm. Our life goes in loops. It's a vibrating membranes. Interesting. That's the way I see it. We certainly go like snakes. The woman, anyway, <laughs> it doesn't go straight. <laughs> cannot she? Cannot. It's too boring. It sure is. It's like it's like rails. We know we can't go straight on a rail, right? So the one way, the one way track. Mm -hmm. it's never. Ha it's nothing that goes on a one way track except a train. Even in, in Switzerland, the trains don't even have. <laughs> If you, go, if you go in Switzerland through, through the mountains, oh. I mean, the, tra the train, there are just bits which are straight. And that comes a curve. You know, that's interesting that you mentioned that because um, I'm here in Zurich and I'm staying at this beautiful hotel. And whenever I stay at a hotel, I, I feel like I'm a very difficult guest oh, I because that. <laughs> I need things I need extra towels I need there's a gorgeous Nespresso machine here with the capsules and the creamers I need more creamer I need mm -hmm. the housekeeping to come at a certain time I need this mm -hmm. I need that I'd like some more water mm -hmm. and I feel like I'm high maintenance I, I'm labeled high maintenance difficult troublemaker mm -hmm. But you're saying as women, I don't know if you meant just women, we don't... We're that's not the way so, we go. That's the way we go. That's exactly the way but, we go. But I am labeled these things. Now I'm pounding on the desk. <laughs> I, I am labeled these things. And so why is it not more known or acceptable that we're complex and we're complex creatures and we don't Absolutely. move in straight lines? And no. We, so, I don't think men go in straight lines either. Right. So the label of being needy or high maintenance. Or hysterical? Yes. <laughs> what do we as soon as you are a bit complex, right. you call hysterical, difficult. Yeah. Yes. yes. So how do we how do we learn to embrace that in each other? I think as you do. Exactly as you do. You want more cream, you want more this, you want more that. And you get it. And not in an angry way. Right. And you get it. And you get it. 
And, and you allow yourself to be so. And their reaction to me is my own stuff yeah. projecting yes. onto them. Yeah. That I feel that I'm this difficult. That. Yes. 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 Yeah. So there's an example yeah. for you all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you're not right. Yeah. You're not the way you should be. Yeah. That's how it goes inside you, right? Right. Thank you for that. I appreciate You're it. You're welcome. I'll pay you at the end of the analytic hour. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'd like to thank Dr. Davies for her kindness and for her deep generosity. And a special thank you to Frith Luton and Daryl Sharp for introducing us. While I was in Zurich, I had the honor of visiting the gravesite that Dr. Von Franz shares with Barbara Hanna. You can see photos in a blog post on our website, speakingofjung.com. There you'll also find links to all of the books that were mentioned in this episode, including some free excerpts. On the website, you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. You can also listen to this podcast on iTunes and on Stitcher. Last week, I was the guest on Beyond the Strange to introduce Jung to a whole new audience. And on our website, you'll find links on how to listen to that as well. Next week, I'll be Brian's guest on The Mind's Eye to discuss Jung's writings on the occult. You can follow me on Twitter at Laura for what's coming up next on the podcast. I'd once again like to thank everyone who made my trip to Zurich possible. Thank you to United Airlines, the Park Hyatt Zurich, all of my previous guests for their love and support, and my eternal gratitude as always to Sean Lau, Charlie Arthur, and Diane Braden. This is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. <laughs> <laughs>